Wizard the Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Pietney. We have Paul Kimball and Holly Stevens on the show. They are known affectionately as Mully and Scalder, and I have no idea why, but we'll find out shortly. But first of all, after being under the impression that Paul Kimball had retired from paranormal research, I learned that to take Don Ecker as an example, and myself as a matter of fact, you really never retire from this thing. So would you explain? Paul, how you got out of it and why maybe you're back in it again. Well, I never actually retired. Um, that's the easy explanation. What I, quote, quote, retired from doing was uh, blogging on the other side of truth, which is the blog I've maintained for the last three or four years, I guess. Um, I was still writing for Alien Worlds magazine at the time, and um, I made it clear in this little post I put up on my blog that I wasn't leaving the world of the paranormal, I was just leaving um, the world of blogging um, because frankly sort of having, not having, but you know, feeling obliged to put something up every day I just didn't have time, I was shooting a feature film uh, and then after three or four months I guess I decided, well, you know I, I don't have to do everything every day, I can do it whenever I want to, so now maybe I'll put two or three things up a week and then I'll go away for a month and then as the spirit moves me, I'll return and do something, so I, there was, it was a misconception I think by some people I didn't actually retire from um, paranormal, whatever you want to call it. I, I did retire, I suppose, from ufology um, in the sense that I wanted nothing more to do with the crazy, zany world of uh, ufology, which is different than the serious world of UFO research. Let's separate that for our listeners because I think we always have new listeners. A lot of new listeners have joined us in recent months, and maybe they're not acquainted with the fact that there's a crazy world and there is a serious world of research to find out what's going on, and we got to look at that line of demarcation. We try to separate it. Possibly one of the few shows that tries to do that. We try to point out who the crazies are hmm. and put them in a little room and maybe lock the doors every so often, shut the doors, you know, use the bolt, special bolt locks and everything. Those rooms with the padded cells and, yeah, those rooms. Um, yeah, no, that's why one of the reasons why I like your show. You can you can listen, and on any given week, it could be Mac Tony's talking, which is a good thing. And on any other given week, it could be somebody who's not Mac Tony's talking, and some of those people might not might not be um, people that uh, you would want to take seriously. Or it could be someone like Stephen Bassett having a mental breakdown on the air. I heard that show. Kudos oh. to you guys. That was it, it. Took me back to my time at the Laughlin UFO conference two years ago when he. We had this almost the exact same conversation in front of Nick Pope and a couple of others, and Bassett became so enraged, there's no other word for it, that he stood up and turned his back to me, slapped his ass cheek, and said, you don't know what you're talking about. This was me telling him he shouldn't have people like Stephen Greer, people at this conference, if he wanted to be taken seriously. And this was after you and I had been at the ex-conference, David. You probably remember that. Mm -hmm. And um, and he literally slapped his ass and then went back to the poker tables where I'm sure he spent whatever you know money he had made off the X conference. So well, he's uh, not doing it for money, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I, I don't know. Who knows why he's doing it? Um, I, I couldn't say. All I know is I listened to the episode and as it went on, it took me back to to better times and I I. I laughed and cried and I was a better person for it so and then I felt obliged to go listen to the Stephen Greer and Paula Harris episodes which I hadn't listened to and that was that was one of those mornings that I'll never forget so <laughs> glad we did something to make you smile and laugh 
Indeed, indeed you did. So, yeah, for your listeners who, you know, go listen to the previous times I've been on the Paracast, I sort of set it out, but I, you know, there are people who take UFO research seriously and have all sorts of differing opinions, including people who think they're aliens, people who skeptics, debunkers, people who think all sorts, you can disagree, but they take it seriously. And then there's the other people, um, which I would generally refer to as ufology, um, people like Stephen Greer, uh, you know, the Benny Hinn of ufology, and they're what keeps, I would say, the mainstream from really wanting to take the UFO phenomenon seriously. I mean, there's a number of things, but primarily, I think it's these people because they're they're nuts, and uh, and getting involved with them or associated with them. Um, I mean, I've done it. I sat, David, you were there. I sat on the panel. Nick Pope and I and and Bruce McAbee. You know, I would like to think reasonably sensible people. Richard Dolan was there on the same panel where you had Alfred Weber talking about aliens using particle weapons to pull to bring the World Trade Centers down. And um, at some point, I was kind of doing it, you know, just to say I did it. But at some point, you you really should go. Maybe I shouldn't do that anymore. <laughs> so well, there's the, this little story that uh, I was there and I remember it happened. And uh, I'll be a, a sort of a, a scribe of this then and, and bring up the fact that when you uh, screened best evidence at yeah. uh, at that X conference, and uh, after it was over, Bassett, I guess, had gotten drunk and was nowhere to be found and you were standing up or sitting up on a on a stage with the the, the gal who did the voiceover stuff for the um the documentary and you were taking uh questions from the audience except uh, uh, i guess nobody was there to actually turn the lights on it's true nobody knew where the lights were so um and, and, and bass was was literally drunk he was drunk off of somewhere and uh and that was it and it was just incredibly unprofessional i have to say on bass's part you know it yeah. was sad I guess it was. The, the, on the flip side, the nice thing about it was that the people who were there, some of the people who went to that conference, obviously, are people who like listening to Stephen Greer, and there's not much you can do for folks like that. Right. They are who they are, and that's fine. But a number of people who went to that conference were people who wanted to listen to Nick Pope or Bruce or, or Richard Dolan. Um, and those people, uh, you know, like you, um, David, um, and others who were there, those people, I think, saw the film. and. And so there was a good Q&A, and of, I don't know, 10 questions that I took, or 11, whatever it was, I think, you know, seven or eight were good, serious questions, and maybe three were like, the Zeta Reticulans and the Pleiadians, or well, where do they figure into your film? Well, okay, yeah. thank you, ma'am. Um, but then other people would ask serious questions, and um, Bob Salas was there, too, of course, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and Bob's in the film. So, you know, in a sense... It, it's actually, I'm glad I went to all those conferences, um, even the ones that are the freaky shows, because they're fun, and, you know, you do get to hang out with some interesting people. But after a while, you know, you realize there are bigger and better things to do. So, um, right. so exactly. I stop going. Well, and that's my stance in this as well. I've, uh, I've done two of the X conferences, and that's it for me. There's yeah. no reason to go. I know what I'm going to see, and most of it's junk. Well, honestly, the only thing, the only reason you, I, I truly believe the only reason you would go, especially if you're speaking, and I, I mean no offense to my friends like Nick and, and others, but the only reason you would go is if you have something to sell. Um, now, I don't have anything to sell. I mean, I, I, every time I go to these, went to these conferences, I, I don't take DVDs with me. I mean, I think people think I do. People come and say, oh, where can I get you some? I say, well, you know, call our distributor or catch it on TV. But I don't go there to sell stuff. A, I don't like doing it. And B, you know, that's not why I'm there. But everybody else is. And there's nothing wrong with that. But on the other hand, you have to understand 
why um, some of these people, like Stan or Dolan or Pope or whoever, um, and not necessarily begrudge them the fact that they're going there because, um, you know, to some extent they make their living off of off of selling their books and, and those sorts of things. I don't. Uh, so, um, you know, it's, it's, it's not quite as clear-cut and cut-and-dried for them as, as maybe um, some people think it is. Mm-hmm. I know like guys like Nick get a lot of flack from, um, from the more serious types within you, the UFO research community for going to something like the X Conference. And, um, you know, two things. Stan has always said he goes partly to, to talk to the people who are serious, uh, and perhaps that's fair enough. And, but you can counter that by saying, well, okay, but by being on the same stage as Stephen Greer or Alfred Weber, you're lending some of your credibility to them. Right. And, uh, so that, I think, is a wash. Then you have to look at the commercial aspect, and we live in a capitalist society. You know, you have to pay your rent or whatever. In this day and age, and with the politics of the world, some people are suggesting maybe that's coming to an end. What, the capitalist society? Yes. <laughs> maybe. Um, I don't know. Uh, we live in Canada, so we live in a neo-capitalist society, I guess. We're sort of socialist up here. Okay, well, they want that down here now, I understand. Good luck with that. Okay. I have a question very simply about everything else that I hear, and this has nothing to do with the power cast, but maybe listeners want to know. Is it true that if you want to have medical care in Canada, you have to get on this huge waiting list because the system is so overwhelmed? No. Although there's, uh, yeah, this will be the only political question of any sort that I'll take. No, it's not true, and yes, it is. Um, I'm, if you have money, the sort of the standing story in Canada is if you have money, like real money, um, you go to the United States and you, you purchase private medical care at some clinic somewhere. Uh, because there are wait times in Canada, um, and the system isn't perfect. On the other hand, the wait times aren't as long as people, you know, I think outside of this country, i.e. living south of the border i.e. members of the Republican Party, um, seem to think they are, or at least tell the American people they are. And the system up here, for all its flaws, um, you know, I think works better than the system south of the border. No offense to my American cousins. So uh, it's one of the things Canadians, I think, are rightly proud of, is a health care system that makes sure that all of our citizens are covered, regardless of where they fit on the sort of economic scale. Well, for the family of three here, we're paying with a $1,000 deductible over $1,300 a month. So I'll just leave it at that and think about that just for health care. Okay. All right. Now, let's move back into the realm of the paranormal, although some people may think that health care is part of the paranormal and so are politics. We offer free health care up here for Sasquatch, by the way. So, you know, any Bigfoot can walk into any clinic in British Columbia and get free health care. Okay, I'll go for that. All right, before we go into your new venture here, which is this thing involving Mully and Scalder, okay, and then we'll introduce Holly Stevens in a very quick moment here. Have you seen anything interesting in the UFO part of your research that makes you want to comment further on that before we move into this other venture? Not really. I don't think so. Um the only things I listen to the Paracast and, and some other podcasts, and it's, it's always interesting to listen to the people, but I don't think there's anything other than the disclosure, the ongoing disclosure that's been happening in the United Kingdom and um, Denmark, of all places, and, and other countries. Uh, Canada's documents have been available for the most part for a number of years now. I mean, that's interesting. Uh, other than that, though, I, I haven't really seen uh, any sort of big UFO stories that have 
has uh, compelled me to go on uh, a jihad of UFO um, commentary or anything on my blog. So uh, it makes it easy to stay away from the UFO field or whatever when there's not much going on. And yes, the um, the O'Hare case and the Stephenville case are of relatively recent vintage. But other than that, I can't think of anything. You know, it seems to be the same rehash of the same old, same old, and a lot of it is the same old personality-driven conflicts or whatever that uh, you know started to turn me off last year. Um, so, uh, so nothing really drives me back. I mean, you know, it's interesting. There are guys like Mac Tony's. I'm eagerly awaiting Mac's book on his crypto terrestrial hypothesis, um, just because it'll be something new. And it's always good to talk to my good friend Greg Bishop or Nick Redfern about what they're doing. So I read their their stuff. But um, but generally speaking, there's nothing there's nothing I find terribly interesting at the moment about the UFO thing. No. <laughs> Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked, we answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, separating signal from noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and David. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. This is Leslie Kane, and I'm with the Coalition for Freedom of Information, and you are listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. What is terribly interesting is that we have Paul Kimball and Holly Stevens joining us on the Paracast, and at their new site, they use the nicknames Mully and Scalder. And I'm going to ask Holly Stevens, first of all, welcome to the Paracast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. And welcome to our crazy world. How did you get involved in this, and why are you called Sculder? Oh, <laughs> I got involved in this probably back in November. Um, Paul had approached me after we had shot a, uh, a feature film, and they were shooting a ghost hunting series and had been using people who did this on a standard day-to-day or weekly basis using all the tricks of the trade and they just found although they were doing a very good job it wasn't transferring very well into something that people would want to watch on a regular basis so Paul approached me they decided they were going to go with a uh, two people who were just going to go in have their own experiences and find out other people's first-hand cases first-hand witness experiences and just see what we could find and so that's kind of how I got, wouldn't really say dragged into it because I'm really enjoying it and it's a fascinating experience. 
but that's how I got involved. Have you had any paranormal experiences yourself amongst your family or friends? Before or after I started this? <laughs> before. Let's go to your life before, Holly. Sure. There's been a number of different different things that have happened to me over my lifetime that I have thought were strange or abnormal. Um, paranormal, possibly. It's, it's really hard to, to say. I'm just thinking back to my childhood here. One, I remember as a very young child. I mean, as a child, you're always so scared of the dark. You never like leaving your bed or doing anything like that when you <laughs> first go to bed. But I remember this one night I, I had left to go to the bathroom, get a drink of water, was coming back, passing the staircase, which, of course, was a very scary place. But very clearly, I could hear someone at the bottom of the staircase calling my name. It wasn't done in a ghostly manner or any kind of, ooh, nothing like that. And I don't think it was my brother playing tricks on me, but I could hear someone saying my name in the house, and everyone else was in bed. So it's very strange. I mean, how do you explain that? Maybe I was delusional. Who knows? And that's just one case. There's been certainly a number of different things that have come up since we started digging around and uh, looking into the haunted corners of the places that we do go. The interesting thing, guys, is, as you probably know, um, I come from a more skeptical bent uh, and an agnostic bent, I suppose, is the best way to put it. And um, Holly seems more, as we've gone through doing the seven episodes we've done so far, I mean, she has a science background. She has a degree in biology, which she, she doesn't trumpet, so I'll trumpet for her. But she seems more in tune is probably the best way to put it, probably a little more open-minded than I was when I started, although I've had enough crazy stuff happen so far that I'm a bit more open-minded than I was before. Um, but, you know, she seems to have one of the, like a tuning fork for, uh, I wouldn't say the paranormal, but at least the the kinds of things that we're looking at. So if we're in a, an allegedly haunted house, she might. She seems to feel more things, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Skulder, but she seems to feel more things uh, than, than I have um, so far. Oh, that's definitely true, although I always bugged you about this because you never really opened yourself up to try and find anything. I know. It's the, it's You're the, just so closed off. It's the typical guy-girl thing, isn't it? I'm so closed. It's no emotion. No, he... Um, <laughs> It's very interesting, actually. And the whole Mulder Scully thing, or Skulder Maldi. Yeah, yeah, careful now. We don't want to get in trouble. As it came across. Well, we were discussing it in reference to the X Files and trying to put one of us in one place or the other. Who were we, kind of thing. And honestly, we, we couldn't separate them. We're, we're one of both. And that's kind of where the names kind of melded together. Yeah, and we were on a four-hour drive to a location. <laughs> and, you know, after about an hour, you've got nothing left to talk about that's serious, so you just start joking around. And uh, that's kind of how it came up. It's just a play on the X-Files thing, the Scully and Mulder. And, and the only question left was which one of us was Mully and which one of us was going to be Skulder. And um, and so we drew straws, and I got to be Mully. Mm. Skulder sounds better. Yeah. Absolutely. You, you drew the short stick there, Paul. I always, so. <laughs> I always do take it. <laughs> So here's a question. You've mentioned that both of you have had some experiences looking into this. Give us the most extreme one. Let's start right at the top. I think we might agree on it. So, Holly, you know, you know what, Holly, I always go first. You go first, and then we'll see if I agree with well, you. Well, I'm thinking of two different experiences. So Okay, go ahead. <laughs> one of the more extreme that happened just to Paul and I happened when we were in one of our episodes shooting in New Brunswick. Um, we were in a in a cell where someone had actually been allegedly been hanged, and uh, what was really interesting, and I don't know how much of this is actually going to show up on camera, 
Unfortunately. But we were sitting in the cell, Paul being a bit of an arse, joking around and kind of making fun of the spirits, which I get after him for, because, you know, you're opening up doors there, and I don't know, I don't want to deal with all of that. So he's poking fun at the ghosts and stuff like that, um, sitting there with a noose around his neck, and being quite amusing. And I had the, um, the EMF reader, the electromagnetic field detector, beside me. I wasn't touching it at this point in time. And uh, nothing was really kind of sensing anything or anything like that. So uh, Paul decides to turn off the lights. Leave the camera going, turn off the lights. I'm uh, smiling right now, being a bit of an idiot. But, um, and shortly after that, I started to, I don't really know if you wanted to say I sense something that sounds a little flaky. I started to get a very... I started to be able to feel a presence in front of me, you know, Paul sitting beside me, and I, I couldn't really see anything so much, but I could see, if I could feel, if I could see things in front of me, which I can, but actually feel it with my hands, it was that tangible. Something was in front of me, scared the crap out of me. I glanced down at the EMF reader, and it wasn't doing anything at this time, so I thought, oh, okay, I'm just going crazy in my head here. I'm not, I, something, there's nothing there, it's my own head. And at this point in time, it actually, the EMF reader flashed. It spiked for a brief second for no other reason where it hadn't been doing that previously in the space. So I swore, scared <laughs> the crap out of me. And at the same time, Paul actually was experiencing something himself, which I did not know about. It happened over the same period of time. It's literally, it, it does show up on camera, even though the lights were off. Um, and, and after this happened, we turned the lights back on and, well, we had, it was, you know, low lighting. It's television, so it was blue light. And, um, th just to give a bit of the backstory, yeah, Holly's motioning that I get strangled. That, right? <laughs> it's important. No, yeah, I'll come back to the strangle thing. But Who got strangled? What's going on here? What are you guys talking about? <laughs> um, well, I get strangled on a regular basis by Holly, but... Um, okay, well, I didn't want to get into that kind Why of stuff. Why do you do that? Why do you do that, Paul? I don't know. Um, usually because I'm picking her off. But in, the, in terms of this particular incident, it's um, important... Just to do a little bit of the backstory, uh, we were at the old jail in St. Andrews, New Brunswick, which is close to the main border. The, the jail itself was stems back to about 1830, I think. So it's a very old building. It's a stone stone building, and the um, the alleged ghost in the jail was a, a former RAF Royal Air Force sergeant named Tom Hutchings, who was hanged there. He was the last person hanged in St. Andrews, and I think in New Brunswick in 1942 for the brutal uh, rape and murder of a local girl. He was stationed there during the war. So we were in his cell. He wasn't actually hanged in the cell, but they built the scaffold right behind it outside, you know, outside the jail, but literally right in it. So he, his walk was about 10 feet to the scaffold. And so this is where he spent his final, his final days. And um, so, you know, going in, we knew that. And Holly's quite right. I, I was goofing off. I kind of I kind of do sometimes the little, I play the humorous bit to her more serious bit, and they had a noose hanging there um, out in the hallway, and so I went in with the noose around my neck, and uh, and I might have said a few things to the alleged ghost, who knows. Um, anyway, so we're sitting there, and nothing is happening, as Holly says, we turn the lights off, um, you know, to see if, if, and it's really cold, too, i got to tell you, that's important, it's very cold. And so she's got the EMF meter, but I can't see it. That's important to note, too. Um, even if I was to look at her, even if the lights were fully on, her body is shielding the EMF meter. It's just the way it was sitting next to her on the other side. So as she sees this, whatever it is that appeared in front of her, um, and as the EMF meter spikes and it, it hadn't really taken the baseline reading, there was nothing there, I felt an intense, and there's, there's no other way to put it, an intense cold wrap around my throat 
Um, and I didn't have the noose on. I had taken the noose off by now, about 10 minutes earlier, because um, that joke had run its course. So we had just been sitting there quietly. She, and you can actually, it, this is how it goes down. You can hear it, her basically say, um, at the same time as I go, wow, within like a quarter of a second of each other, at the same time as she kind of looks over and, and you know, the, the thing spikes. So it's all happening pretty much at once. And if any one of these three things, the EMF meter had spiked or she had said she'd seen something or I had felt this cold, any of those three things that happened independently of the other, um, I would be much more inclined to go, oh, you know, here's eight different reasons why that happened. But all of them happening at the same time uh, was quite spooky. I was going to say scary. Actually, it was kind of scary, but spooky is a better word because uh, I don't want to sound like a wuss. And so I turned the lights back on, and, you know, we talked about this. You know, we kind of just, okay, what happened? And this, you know, this is, it'll all be there uh, in the show. And we just kind of talked about what had happened. It's like, wow, okay, that was, that was really weird. Well, let's stick it out, you know, because this is part of a segment we do. We call it spooky hour or spooky time where we basically, whatever room or whatever place is supposed to be haunted, we send the crew away, we go in, we set the camera up, and we just uh, we stay there for an hour, an hour and a half, and, um, and wait to see if anything happens. So we continued on for, I think, about another five minutes. And my co-producer was pointing, he was reviewing footage the other day, and he said, look, you, you should come look at this. And I knew what had happened, but I hadn't actually seen it. And there's this, I sit there, and about five minutes later, Holly looks over again at the, the EMF reader, and it spikes literally at the same time as I turtle. And there's no other way to describe it. And what was happening was the, uh, the that, that sensation of the, um, I, I wrote a song once, it was like, the, I had this lyric, the night wraps around your throat. Um, and that's what it felt like. It was much colder than the cold we were in, like a hand wrapping around my throat. And it happened again uh, at the same time as the EMF meter spiked, and there it is on camera, and I can't see the EMF meter. I'm not even looking at Holly. Um, I'm actually kind of looking away, and I, I really sort of scrunch in. I'm doing it now, which I realize we're not on TV, so it doesn't, it doesn't do any good. Ladies but. and gentlemen, here's how we're going to do it. Everybody, please concentrate, and we want you to remote view what's happening right now there you go everybody remote view it's a global consciousness thing but i i, I just turtle in amongst you know like this and I, my hand goes up to my neck and it's obvious that something uncomfortable has happened and so she looks to her right um to oh wow the emf meter spikes and i'm there like this really because um guess what she looks you can see her she looks over and she goes again i went oh yeah and that was the end of spooky time uh, i have to admit i think I bailed at about a minute after that, even though we hadn't quite run the full hour, hour and a half, because uh, I'd had enough. Um, I just didn't want to be in there anymore. It was a, it had become an oppressive. I mean, it was a really small jail cell too. And but those, that stuff happening, I have to admit. Um, and again, I, I'm a skeptic and agnostic and all of that. So I think there's some credibility to me when I say that I consider that to have been an experience. I'm not going to say a paranormal experience, but it's one that I definitely file in the can't explain category. Really interests me, um, scared me, no question at the time. Uh, and even now thinking about it, uh, I get a little queasy just thinking about it because, um, you know, there's no question whatever sensation I felt around my throat was definitely different than anything I'd ever felt before. Here, then the punchline is there's a, because the, the old jail is now a, a museum, we had somebody there who, um, who had seen ghosts, one of the museum employees, but she, she did tours and stuff, so she came in after we left the cell and you know I kind of said well okay the guys can view this on the monitor you know outside 
80 feet away or wherever they were and said, oh, what happened? And so I explained it. And she said, well, I didn't want to tell you before you went into the cell, but that's something that people, when they go into the cell, they often feel is the sensation of, of, of something going around their throat. And she, she specifically didn't tell us before we went in there um, because she didn't want to, for lack of a better term, taint our experience or whatever. Sure. But after we left, she said, you know, this, you're not the first one. Um, who's who's kind of reported that sort of sensation, and so what makes it interesting to me? It's like a, U a good UFO case where you have a witness who can also be corroborated by another independent witness and maybe some radar data or something. You know, you've got something happening all at the same time, two ex people experiencing two different things at the same time as whatever you think the scientific viability of an EMF meter might be in terms of ghost hunting, um, it spikes. And so I could dismiss any one of those three things, perhaps. I don't dismiss all three of them when they happen at the same time and then happen again five minutes later. Paul, quick question for you. Uh, when this actually happened, you described uh, temperature. You described it being cold. What about pressure? Yeah, um, it's, it's interesting because we, we sort of joke that I was strangled. Um, there was, you know, who knows? This is like it's a little weird because you have to travel back in time two months and try and remember so what happened and I, I kind mm -hmm. of wrote it down there was a small I can say safely there was a small element of pressure at least I believe there was kind of as if you were tying a necktie and I don't like wearing ties but if you if you sort of tie a necktie not the tie but when you button that top button of your collar before you you tie the necktie and so you realize that something has at least a shirt even if it's a perfect fit it's a different feeling than if you're wearing an open collar and that's how I would describe it I would describe that part of the sensation um, as being as buttoning the shirt up and suddenly your neck feels different than it did if you're wearing an open collar and so that combined definitely with this this cold sensation that literally um, it, it's as if it came from in front of me and wrapped itself around so it starts at the front it's not like it appeared all over mm -hmm. my neck at once but it starts mm -hmm. at the front and I mean you know at the speed of super whatever it moves quickly but it wraps itself around your throat and I've never been strangled that I can recall but I can imagine that uh, you know that's what went through my mind that um, that something was was strangling me you know if the guy had died by dra um, I don't know if uh, he'd been shot in the stomach then perhaps I wouldn't be as, as amused by it uh, or interested. The fact that he had actually been hanged, that's, yeah, that's, that's interesting. That's an interesting data point. The way you described the, the, the shirt tightening, that, that I assume then that means that whatever pressure there was was evenly distributed versus specific points of it. Yeah, that's how I would describe it, yes. Okay. Um, although, you know, it's, it does, i got to tell you guys, it, it does give you a greater appreciation. Um, and I worked as a police officer for five months when I was in law school with the Mounties, and, you know, I testified at trials and had to recount my, uh, when we'd arrest people, the experiences and stuff. So I, I understand what it's like to be a witness. I've been one. I also understand what it's like to examine a witness, because I've done that when I, was, uh, when I was at legal aid. So I've been on both sides. So I understand the witness thing. But when something is happening to you, whether it's whether you're an observing a car accident, as I did, or whether it's something that the ghost is wrapping around your throat or whatever, whenever it's happening to you, you realize that oh, it happens very quick and a lot of things go through your mind, and that's why it's great to have the cameras in our case. If, mm -hmm. if this was just me and I had just been sitting there with Holly and maybe we were on a tour and this had happened and then I have no, rec I have no record of what happened other than my own recollection, that's, that's a bit different. 
but we can actually go back and look at the video footage of it, and that jogs in the way that, as a police officer used to judge, you take notes, and on the stand eight months later, you can refer to your notes to, as they would say, refresh your memory. The same thing is true of the video um, data, and sometimes the audio data, because we carry audio recorders with us, too, to see if anything gets picked up. You know, you can refresh your memory as to what happened. And so coming out of St. Andrews and driving back to Halifax, I think it was two days later, you know, Holly and I drove back together, and we, we talked about this experience. And even then, even just two days later, um, I wasn't completely sure about the order of things. Like, I think it happened this way, but did it really? Or did you say, you know, fuck, and then maybe that played on my mind and blah, blah, blah. So how did it really happen? Did it really happen? Bing, bing, bing. And it really did. It really happened. Bing, bing, bing. So I don't think, I know the first thing that is a skeptic, I would say, well, um, you, you had had a noose around your neck. Holly said something that influenced you. You know, you can get down the list. Power and of suggestion. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I would say no to that. <laughs> okay, so this is something that you weren't talked into, something that you felt. Business travel is a profitability killer. You know that. So do more and travel less with GoToMeeting, the easiest, most affordable online meeting service. With just a click, launch sales presentations, training sessions, product demos, or collaborative sessions right from your desk. GoToMeeting is so easy to set up and use, you'll have your first meeting running in seconds. Plus, hold as many meetings as you want for one flat rate. Free VOIP and phone conferencing included. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. For this special offer, you must visit www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts. That's www.gotomeeting.com slash podcasts for a free trial. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. feeling the presence here of Molly and Scalder, better known as Paul Kimball and Holly Stevens, doing a reality TV show, Ghost Hunting. Now, how do you compare what you're doing to maybe the Ghost Hunters show in the USA? Um, it's funny. Holly and I were talking about this, and I think she's... I've never seen, watched a single episode of the Ghost Hunters show. I know sort of how they do it, but uh, I, I've never watched an episode, and when I learned that we were going to be doing this somebody suggested to me that maybe I should and I said well no I don't want to um, I'd rather go do whatever I do without reference to what what they're doing either to replicate it or to say oh they do that so I don't want to do it so um, I to this day I've never watched a single episode of Ghost Hunters uh, so I couldn't say I think Holly might have so Holly I've seen a couple of episodes um, I did want to see what they were doing in, in comparison to what we were doing and and I mean, I know what we're doing when we're doing it. I know how we're studying things and uh, what we're looking for, the interviews that we do, our own personal experiences. 
how they end up editing and putting it on television, I don't know what it's going to look like at that point. But there are some things that they do on the Ghost Hunter show, which I think are very valuable. And then there are things that I think that they do just to grab the audience, and it takes away from the overall um, paranormal experience. Holly, what do you think detracts from the serious research in terms of Ghost Hunters? Um, well, what they tend to do... I've found on a couple of occasions, um, which really irritates me, <laughs> and maybe it's not them personally, it's the way it's being edited and presented to the public, but things that they do to catch the audience for the next one, oh, coming up next, one of their ghost hunters is attacked, and then you go, oh, that's really strange, you keep watching, and then it comes up, and you see that, you know, it was someone else who had scared the other person, so it's, to me, that's you're you're relying on being you're lying there on what's actually going on. Sure, the person was attacked by it was another by another investigator, and I just find that kind of thing frustrating. I realize it's for people to watch; they want you to watch the television, so you watch the commercials so that they make money. But when you're trying to gather information, even if it is just by watching these shows, I think there should be something a little bit more valid. Mm-hmm. I also want to interject one thing here that uh, I've watched a little bit of the Ghost Hunters series, and what's always really struck me about them is that they, they seem to have almost no understanding of technology, which is very dangerous when you're using technology in your field investigations. They, they don't seem to understand how to do the most basic uh, noise cleanup and normalization of levels of audio. Their complete lack of any image processing or video analysis skills is, uh, is frustrating. Even when they, when they get footage that looks compelling, they don't seem capable of enhancing the footage so you can actually see what's going on. And it makes me wonder, I mean, you know, why is that? They don't seem capable or they don't try to. Maybe both. I don't know. Yeah, yeah sometimes by tr I mean, we've already begun the process of analyzing um, the audio data, and um, some interesting things have popped up, but there's no question that in terms of post-production, because we're working uh, very closely with the network here. In fact, they provide the facilities and stuff that we have you know, as much time as full, full range of access to good, solid post-production people and equipment. You know, we will be, and we are, looking very carefully at this stuff um, because I take it, as I think you guys know, I take all of these things seriously. If you're going to do it, yes, it's fun, and it is, and all of that sort of stuff, but you should also take it seriously and respect it. And before I would, you can talk about your personal experience, but before I would sign off on a piece of, uh, whether it's audio, uh, data or evidence, whatever you want to call it, or video data or evidence, you know, I want to make sure that it's been um, analyzed and dealt with as, as carefully as we can, given the constraints that, you know, whatever budget you have might bring into it. But I assume Ghost Hunters has a much bigger budget than we do because they're on sci-fi. So I, I, like I said, I've never watched it, but I would find that disturbing, David, coming from you, um, because... You know, that's your area of expertise. If, if you find that to be a flaw in the program, I, I don't know yeah. how to be explained. I'll give you a great example of this, Paul, and it'll bring up a specific question about what, what you folks are doing. Are you recording audio looking for EVP data? Yes. What kind of recorders are you using? Off the top of my head, honestly, couldn't tell you. That's our techie guys could tell you that. Uh-oh, here come the police. Uh, sorry, I, I, Those are the I, techie I, guys coming to pick up Paul yeah, and, <laughs> and Holly. Yeah, I told them not to put the marijuana here. Oh, um, man. But, uh, the reason I ask, Paul, is that on the Ghost Hunters, mm -hmm. the audio recorders they use are basically like transcription recorders. They're incredibly low fidelity. They're, they're terrible electronics with bad frequency response characteristics. Mm. Um and so the, the amount of data you can actually capture on those things is 
tiny, and that's what they do their EVP stuff with. When indeed to go get a decent, like a, a decent little high fidelity field recorder is not an expensive proposition anymore. They don't seem to do it. I was just going to say, I think ours are somewhere between those two. Um, they're they're not the highest end, and there's no question. I mean, I come from the music industry. Just listening to it, there's a lot of clutter. With good post production equipment, you can you can deal with a lot of those problems. But I'd say two things. One, the way it works is, you know, for me, if 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 you put it in front of a guy who's a composed audio guy, and he's sitting there in front of his Pro Tools or Soundscape or whatever it is, and he cleans it all up, and he listens to it, and you're not there, and he calls you up and he says, hey, there's something here that you might want to come here, uh, and you haven't told him to expect anything because you haven't listened to it, which in my case is true, then um, that that's, that's interesting. But the other thing is, and maybe, I don't know, maybe this is a little different than Ghost Hunters. When we started... I think we we had my meaning my co-producer Dale Stevens and I um, we had an idea of doing a very scientific um, you know hard evidence kind of thing with witness accounts and everything but that was basically how it was going to go and that's we originally had four people who were um, that's what they do they ghost investigate the group called very good group up here called um, oh that's horrible now I completely blanked on a name Rob Fader and um, Grim Undertakings there you go and a good group in Halifax, very credible, very good people, and they take it very seriously. The problem was, for television, they took it a little too seriously. And um, I make no bones about it, it's television. So at the same time, it's infotainment. You try and do as much of the info part as the tainment part, but you have to do both. And so that's why, um, plus there were four of them, which made the dynamics of having four people uh, difficult. So we pared it down to two. And we, we changed it a bit so that the, the focus, and I think part of it came because because I became involved in front of the camera, which was, believe me, not my preferred option. But because I sort of had this, this reputation as an agnostic and a skeptic and, and all that sort of stuff, it, it became a bit of the, and this has changed a bit, and in fact a large part of the way I view the paranormal having done this. The idea was to see what kind of personal experience I could have, because I hadn't had one. Although... Um, if you on my on our Molly and Scully blog, I talk about one that I had when I was a kid that may or may not have been paranormal. Leaving that aside for the moment, you know, I wanted to go out and see if I could have um, an experience. So it became as much yes, the witness stories are there, the background, the history, and sure, some of the technical elements are there. But I, I make no bones about it. I'm not going to claim that this is hard science, um, and I'm, I'm not, you know. But that's not what, when we started doing the, this revised version with Holly and I, really, that we set out to do, or at least that I set out to do. What I set out to do was have an experience to, to go through these places myself and just get in there. And um, as it turns out, I've had a couple. But um, so we still pay attention to the DVR cameras and the, the EVP and all that sort of stuff. And it's nice to have the EMF meter there, although you have to be versed in, you know, <laughs> the 20 different things that could account for maybe why it's fun. Mm-hmm. But that's not what we rely on. That is the kind of stuff that when something happens, like the incident that I, we described to you where Holly and I in the cell, where you can also look, oh, the, the, um, the F meter just spiked at the same time as these people were having this experience. Um, you're not relying on the EMF meter. That's just an adjunct to what actually happened to you personally. And I suppose maybe there's the answer. When people ask what's different from ghost hunters, as I understand ghost hunters, you know, we're not claiming to be the world's greatest scientific paranormal investigators of ghosts or whatever it is. We're two people who could be any people, and I think this is what people sometimes get interested in the paranormal about. 
you know, who can go out and do, we just happen to be able to go out and do these things. But it's something that everybody could do if they were to go to St. Andrews and sit in that jail cell or go to wherever else we've gone. So we're, we're acting as proxies for these other people and we're trying to have experiences, not, sorry, not trying to have experiences, but we're, we're opening ourselves up. That's the best way to put it, having experiences. And from my perspective, it's given me a new perspective on all of the paranormal, including the UFO field, that as much as I value, um, you know, the kind of research you do in libraries and archives and all that sort of stuff, there is something to be said, David, for people like you, who've had an actual, I think I've developed more respect, I think, although I've always respected witnesses in an objective sense. I think I have more subjective respect for the witness experience, the personal experience, um, than maybe I did going in. Um, so I've changed in a bit. There you go. Speaking of changes. Fate Magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Hi, this is Bud Hopkins, and you're listening to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg, David Jedney, and I completely, enthusiastically endorse this program. It's an absolutely great program with an opportunity to stretch out and talk. We're talking to Molly and Scalder, or Scalder and Molly, depending on how you prefer it. Paul Kimball and Holly Stevens, they're paranormal TV hosts and investigators. And do you strictly cover ghosts on this Paul and Holly, or do you get into other stuff? Well, uh, actually, it's whatever happens to pop up, quite honestly. I, I don't think you can really discern whether or not the experience that you're, you're either having yourself or the experience that you're interviewing someone else who had, whether or not it was a ghost, whether or not it was a residual haunting, if it was a demon, it, it's just paranormal. It's something that's going on, and we're just trying to figure out what it is. Yeah, it's. I try and stay away from the um, the explanation part of it, like, okay, so something happened to us in the jail. Um, what was it? Ghost, demon, uh, you know, whatever the various explanations. If you choose a paranormal explanation, which box do you tick off? Not really what we're about. Um, so I'll leave it up to some. Although I've, I've written, you know, the idea of time travel, um, and that's something, you know, maybe later on we can get into if you want or not. But the, the theoretical possibilities of what could be going on still interest me the same way that the theoretical possibilities of the UFO thing interest me. But All right. Well, you just raised the issue, and I'm looking as you speak and to show you about the synchronicity here. As you speak, Paul, I look at your blog, the Molly Scolder blog spot. Dot com thing, and it says, "Can ghosts be time travelers?" Yes. Okay. So, can they? How would we reflect that? Does it mean, for example, that somebody who dies in 1880 suddenly appears in 2009 because he or she traveled through time? No. What I think I was giving 
uh, asked Aaron, I've talked with Mac, uh, Tony's about this, and I know other people have brought it up too, the idea that what we may be seeing, and I, again, I preface this by saying I'm not Michio Kaku, obviously, so you're about to get um, sort of uh, quantum light coming, very quantum, very light, but I know enough to know enough. You know, the idea that maybe what we're seeing, um, at least in some cases, are windows into the past. Uh, that maybe what we're doing, if you view time as not a linear concept, but and I think I think it's it's more accurate to say that time is is like a river that it can bend back on itself. It can you know it's it's yesterday, today, and tomorrow, as the Beatles would say, or as some former evangelist uh, leaders in the 19th century would have called it in a religious context. God is eternal. It is the eternal now. But that idea that time is not a linear concept. So anyway, what? Who knows what the scientific mechanism or the explanation would be um, for how it would happen, but maybe what we're getting is a window into the past so that um, when people see things, for instance, like the, the lady who's dressed like she just walked in from the church temperance meeting in 1889 or something, maybe it's not a ghost. Uh, maybe what you're actually doing is seeing you're in a place I don't quite know how to describe it. I'd hate to say a vortex, um, but, you know, a vortex. Maybe you've got something that's opened up that is allowing you to see an image, a glimpse of the past. And I was listening to um, the show you did with Jeff Belanger, uh, mm -hmm. I think two years ago, and you guys were talking about Gettysburg and the battlefield there, which is famously, allegedly haunted. And people see ghost soldiers, for lack of a better term. And I think Jeff was talking, although I don't think he framed it quite that way, but I think he was talking about the same kind of thing, this idea that maybe you're not seeing ghosts, you're not seeing um, what we would commonly refer to as ghosts, but maybe you're actually getting a glimpse either of something that's actually happening. So you're, you're viewing, you're remote viewing the past, or um, it's, some, you know, it's an imprint, something that's imprinted. Some event has imprinted itself, and it's, a, it's the place something about that place that makes it um, more amenable to holding that imprint than, than maybe other places. So, that makes any sense, and I don't know if it does, but it does to me. I don't know if I explained it properly. What hits me as you say that is, okay, maybe some UFOs are glimpses of the future done in the same fashion. That's yes. why they don't seem to interact with us in a physical way. I mean, you see them, maybe you can track them on radar, but they seem to be removed from our physical reality in the way they maneuver. Bingo. I, and I think... You know, I know that some of the real nuts and bolts researchers in the UFO field don't like... Like when Nick Redfern goes off and he starts doing research into Bigfoot, and maybe he starts to try and find common, you know, commonalities between UFO incidents and Bigfoot reports, and I know Nick's done that. Some of the real serious, and I use serious in quotation marks, the ones who want to be taken seriously by the National Academy of Science, good luck, not going to happen. But those people who have that chip on their shoulder go, oh, good heavens, Nick, you can't do that. Um, because you can't taint UFO research with all of these other crazy paranormal things. To which I would respond, and I think why I get along so well with guys like Mac and Greg Bishop and Nick, we all sort of respond that way. Well, that's rather limiting. Why don't we just view it as part of, you know, it's a very Jacques Vallée way of looking at things, as part of the overall fabric of just weird things that may have or may not have some relationship to each other. But if you close yourself off to the idea that there, there might be a relationship between 
what we call ghosts and what other people or we would call UFOs and what we might call um, potentially even Bigfoot, although I don't know about that, but I'm just pulling that one out. But all of these various things that would be classed under the rubric of paranormal, remote viewing, any of those things, maybe they're all interrelated. Maybe there is a unified field theory, for lack of a better term, for the paranormal or theories, of there, because there's probably a number of things that are happening. But um, I think that's something that, that you know, Valet has touched upon for 40 years in the UFO field. Uh, and I think that's probably why he remains a heretic amongst heretics, because he has a more open mind than some of these um, nuts and bolts have to be from Zeta Reticuli people. And uh, I think that's, when you talk about maybe that's what we're seeing with UFOs, absolutely. Uh, and I've always been very open to the concept that one of the perhaps more plausible theories for the UFO phenomenon is time travel that we're dealing we're viewing um, either literal time travelers from the future or we're getting images from the from a future time period that are coming back to us which opens up the question people talk about you know you hear Paula Harris or whoever what are the aliens trying to tell us well that would be interesting I think it would be even more interesting if we could ask ourselves what are our, our future selves trying to tell us you know 10,000 years from now listen um, on January 8th 2010 don't do this you know but maybe we just Maybe we're not on the same frequency. Well, so. maybe it's a random event, so they're not trying to tell us anything. They are just there. Maybe they're flying wherever they're flying in 2010 or 2170, and we just happen to see it, and that's it. I think, and that's that's very much a possibility too. In fact, you know what? I think that's probably more likely. That so, what happens is if you look at this time travel idea, that when we're seeing the lady from the temperance meeting in 1889 on our ghost hunt or investigation. Uh, and then we walk out, and 10 minutes later, we see what looks like an advanced spacecraft or something flying by, or whatever you want to call it. Maybe we're experiencing the same phenomenon. It's just one's coming, we're getting a glimpse of the past. Well, and maybe that's the case. Well, here's the thing. That would all be good and fine, except for a few little uh, troublesome facts. Um, oh, no. We have a, well, we have a number of cases where there are... Uh, uh, there's definite trace evidence around landings where uh, it seems pretty clear that a number of landings have been physical craft that have left marks in the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so we have that where, okay, for some of this, not for all of it, obviously, but for, uh, you know, ask Ted Phillips, he'll tell you about hundreds of trace evidence cases where there were there was definitive physical evidence. Um, th then, well, of something, right? Then you have craft which seem to negate the laws of physics as we know them. And uh, on a recent episode, I, I postulated very briefly, based on uh, one of the two witnesses we had come forward regarding uh, UFO sightings over nuclear facilities, that there was some evidence in the idea that when these craft go to speed, there seems to be no displacement of air, uh, hence no sonic boom, no, no breeze or wind of any sort, no sound. And uh, I postulated this very simplistic idea, and I've been uh, sort of exploring it more in my, in my personal time, but um, this idea that it, it, part of the process of going to speed involves essentially something that would be akin to negating mass, at which point, you know, a technology that would, would theoretically allow you to do that um, now opens up all sorts of other possibilities. And, and if you have a technology that lets you do things like negate mass or change the gravitational characteristics surrounding something, then all of a sudden the idea of what time is, it definitely seems to sort of fall away. And by definition, I think, 
when you have a craft that can move a very large distance in a very at a very very high speed, by definition, that is a time machine. Yeah. Um, so you know you, you have to take all of that into account. But getting back to the the ghostly stuff, there have been a couple of accounts that I've read about in in some of the books that I've been reading in the last few years surrounding this topic that bring up these, and I don't, I'm just going to sort of throw these out. I don't remember exactly the, the details around some of these cases. There, were, there was one case in particular, and this actually might have been in a Jacques Vallée book I read about this, um, where all of a sudden, a number of years ago, there were these interactions with beings that appeared to be human, except they had unusual weapons, um, and they were sort of there, sort of not, sort of there, sort of not. And I thought to myself, as you were describing this idea of essentially having some sort of a of a wrinkle where all of a sudden maybe you were seeing something that had happened in the past and you were you were seeing it as it was happening in that dimensional construct, except you were seeing it here from this vantage point, that maybe there was an idea that this has happened the other way around in the past, that in the past there have been episodes where someone has shown up. Um, and they weren't from that time. Maybe they were from our time, bleeding through into the past. And maybe the, you know, maybe that kind of supports this idea of that kind of an overlap or a wrinkle happening either either way. Yeah. From the, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. No. I, mean, it's, I think it's what Gene was getting at that this idea that we might be seeing things from our future. But mm-hmm. if, you're at, if you're at the temperance meeting in 1889, then then the four of us are their future. Right. So is it possible that maybe we're bleeding back into their past, however that, that would work? You mean they're uh, listening to this show right now? Yeah, it could be. It's also possible that we're seeing things from um, other dimensions, and, you know, you can get down the list. And all of that is, is great stuff, especially if you're having a few beers after a day of shooting, to kind of chat about. <laughs> um, but, you know, it all remains, obviously, theoretical. Uh, sure. and um, And, frankly... With no offense to any of the four of us, um, the scientific elements of it uh, are probably beyond our ken, and I would suspect beyond the ken of more, you know, just about everybody on this planet, with the exception of a few dozen people, and you know, probably beyond their ken as well, uh, in terms of actually making it happen. So uh, all you can do, I think, is is go out and and you know try and have the experience or investigate as best you can, and then talk about what it might be and I think the great thing about listening to you guys and your show with other other folks too is you ground it in a sense of, of reality you're not off in some sort of airy fairy world I mean you might not be the world's top um, theoretical physicist but at least you, you should make an effort to kind of bone up on the very fundamental basics of whether or not it's at least theoretically possible for time travel to exist so I will take the word of a guy like Michio Kaku when he says it's theoretically possible and others like him. And then that opens the door to having a discussion about, well, maybe that's what happened. Instead of, you know, um, Aunt Fanny coming back to visit you um, as a ghost, maybe that we're not dealing with that. And that strips it a bit of its religious context, or at least the life after death context. Maybe what we're dealing with is something um, in, its own, in its own way more interesting. Uh, that opens up more possibilities for us. And I think that's, it's all about the possibilities that it opens up. But, you know, we've used a Ouija board, or Ouija board, depending on who we ask, in an episode. Just I kind of want to ask you that. Uh, we're going to be breaking for our hourly break in a moment, and I just wondered if you could tell our listeners, is this a show we can see on this side of the continent, or is it something strictly limited to Canada right now? Um, as I used to say with Red Rose Tea, only in Canada, dear. 
sorry, only Canadians will get that joke. It's a non-commercial. Uh, it, it, air, it airs on a Canadian. It'll be airing on a Canadian network called Eastlink. Uh, we have a distributor called Breakthrough Films in Toronto, which will be actively distributing it, hopefully to television um, in the U.S. and beyond, but certainly on DVD and uh, all those other things. So, yes, it will be something that you'll be able to see sooner rather than later in the United States and, and everywhere else. Um, but it will be seen first in Canada, no question. No question. Where can we find more information about the show? For those who maybe want to write to their local stations or the cable TV networks and say, carry this show. That's a good question. We don't have a website yet for the program because we're still in production. The best place to look um, for for any news, because I would put it up, would be at the Molly Sculder blog, um, www.mullysculder.com. M-U-L-L-Y-S-E-U-L-D-E-R dot blogspot dot com. Okay, and we'll return with Paul Kimbo and Holly Stevens, alias Molly and Skulder, on the other side of the Paracast, and maybe we'll even journey through time at that time, so maybe it'll be actually the seventh hour rather than the second hour. Welcome back to the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Vietti. We return with Molly and Scalder, alias Paul Kimball and Holly Stevens, busy filming a new paranormal TV show that may or may not come to your channel. We sure hope it does. Now, we had the incident that you told us about earlier, Paul, where you had this strangulation episode, something around your neck. Now, is that it, or have you had other things happen to you during the course of filming episodes for the show? No, that's it. Other than that, Gene's been a complete bust, and, and honestly, it, it's uh, it's going to be a really short DVD set. I mean, basically five minutes. Um, no, sorry. Uh, yeah, there's been some other things. We haven't. We've still got seven episodes. Sorry, seven, six, six episodes to shoot. Um, we're doing five in the United Kingdom, and uh, one more here in Nova Scotia. So, um, so we're only halfway through. But uh, there's um, there was one we went to a, a small farmhouse here in Nova Scotia. That um, that the folks there thought, and we brought a psychic in for that one too. And uh, for anybody who knows me, they're going to go, "Oh my God, Kimball, he's using Ouija boards and psychics. He's he's flipped. He's gone up to the deep end. Um, where is the science?" But you know what? Um, all of these things are open. I'm not saying I buy the psychic. I'm just saying, look, uh, a it's good television, and b maybe maybe there's there's something to it. And as it turned out, one of our other weird experiences happened with the psychic. What had happened was we were in this house, and uh, it's a very, very small house, so uh, I decided to split uh, Holly and I up. And Holly stayed upstairs with the people who lived in the house and the psychic, and Holly can talk to you about what they were doing because I wasn't there. What I did is I took a, uh, a mini-DV camera and went down into the basement, which was one of the places where, and it was like more like a root cellar. It's, it is a root cellar. It's very uncomfortable. So I set the camera up, and I basically just sat on the stairs leading down to the root cellar. And on the stairs were where the residents of the house said most of the parents, you know, the, when they would feel something, and it was not a good thing, that would be where it happened. And so I closed the door behind me, and I'm just sitting there and kind of talking to myself. And upstairs, I can kind of hear bits and pieces of what they're doing upstairs. Not all of it, but bits and pieces of it pieces of it float down to me and I think I heard and Holly can correct me um, something about a dead baby and you know a little bit came in about buried in the basement or something like that and hello what and then um, you know I'd been down there for about 25 or 30 minutes and then I heard well if you can go down to Paul this was the psychic I think if you can go down to Paul and make your presence known do that and I'm thinking 
wait a second, no, um, dead babies don't come down. And at just that exact moment, and again, it's one of those, it's the nice thing about having cameras there, the, the door behind me, which leads outside to the yard, opened. And I, I don't mean like, you know, sort of the wind blew it open, I mean like, and um, this, to me, because it, I was alone down there, at least in the cell, I'd had Holly with me. This was, I, this was, I, I left. You know, I, I spent the next 45 minutes in the freezing cold outside because I didn't want to go in. That's because I'm a TV professional, guys. I didn't want to go in and interrupt what they were doing because they were filming in there. So I stood outside in the freezing cold, contemplating what had happened. And this door opens just at the, you know, like 20 seconds after I, I do hear them. And we've confirmed that that's the timeline. Again, you can kind of confirm that timeline. And, you know, you could say, well, it was the wind, except I, that door was very hard to open if you tried to open it yourself like to get in there you kind of had to grab it sort of thing again remote view folks because I'm, I'm recreating this but you can't see it at home and there, it, the wind there had been stronger wind before and after that because after I left I closed the door and it hadn't opened the door uh, nothing had blown the door open or anything like that and so as I'm standing there for 40 minutes the wind really starts whipping up and I look over to the door and I'm thinking nope the door's not blowing open and again, that's one of those things that that to me is a genuinely weird and creepy experience where I'm down there and I can hear them upstairs and my name pops up and something to the effect of go down and say hello to Paul and the door opens behind me. And I, I have to admit, perhaps I'm not the most intrepid ghost investigator of all time. God knows what would happen if I actually had a close encounter of the third kind. Uh, I laughed. I said, that's it. Again, I've had enough. I, I don't want to be down here. Uh, I am now genuinely creeped out, and thank you. That's, that's the limit of my experience. Um, and so, yeah, that, that one is another one that, for me, I put right up there with the jail cell experience. And the other nice thing, you know, I do this for a living, so I have to say it as well, it's good television because, you know, you're filming in both places and it's happening at the same time. And so there's this, it's not going to be editing when we get there, you know, oh, they, there was really 10 minutes between when X happened and Y happened and they just cut it together. Um, you can either take my word for it or not, but we will edit it accurately so that if it looks like it was 20 seconds, it was 20 seconds or 10 seconds or whatever, these things were happening for all intents and purposes simultaneously. Uh, and uh, that, again, interests me. Um, now, Holly can probably know what was going mm -hmm. on upstairs. Holly can tell you what was happening yeah. upstairs. Yeah. Okay, well, <laughs> upstairs, uh, well, the host itself had a very really heavy feel to it. These people who've been living there had been dealing with it for 30 or 40 years. Um, just a very um, oppressive feeling. And everyone, pretty much everyone that went in the house could actually feel this. And this is the reason that they wanted someone to kind of come. They wanted the psychic to come and, and do a cleansing. So she agreed to do it uh, free of charge if we were going to be filming it. So, you know, it was great for everyone. They got their house cleansed and uh, we got an episode and the uh, psychic got some uh, to show what she could do. But we uh, we were sitting at the table there, and she was, and I'm not even sure how you, you would call it. She was, she, you know, she went into a little bit of a space, and she started to draw um, figure eights, the sign of a of eternity on a, on a paper, and then she started to write things. And she had experience with this, and as she'd been writing, she'd gotten maybe a couple of words, a couple sentences, but she was really, and she said uh, she was really overwhelmed by the amount of information that was coming forward to her. And she was just writing pages upon pages. She brought five pages, you know, up on the table. 
and and and, and you know, she quickly went through them, and we had to bring in more paper for her to write on more paper. She was just floored by the information that was coming through, and we hadn't expected it because the presence she was feeling was not a happy presence. It was you want to call it evil, sure. It, it wasn't it wasn't a good presence, but we ended up finding out based off the information that was being given to her um, a completely different story. Um, a story about someone who had been trying to get help, who had been trying to get help from the people who were living there to help this person set free another spirit, essentially, is what it was, who had not been able to um, leave, leave the, this earth, essentially. Um, whether you believe that or not, uh, it's up to you. I'm just telling you exactly what was happening. <laughs> sure, <laughs> was happening. sure. But... Um, so what ended up happening is she was getting all this information and telling us where the location of this other this other spirit was, this this baby, this body that we were trying to locate, and and we initially misunderstood because we were getting she was getting that it was in the basement, which is why, as we weren't there, Paul happened to be down there, another location where things seemed to be happening. We she told the, this spirit to go down and uh, and make contact with Paul, which is when the door opened on his side apparently, which we had no knowledge of at the time. But he showed us later on the video camera because he was quite freaked out about it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You were freaked out about. It. I mean, obviously you wouldn't even stay down there. We send this poor guy down to you for help, and you take off. So anyway. Like I said, not the most intrepid ghost investigator, but... Well, so you're the kind of guy that if the ghost comes up to your front door, you run in the other direction. It's like the scene in the movie Ghostbusters, where they go into the library, yeah. and they see the ghost, and the ghost starts running after them, and they run out of the library. That, I would be the Dan Aykroyd, yeah. Yes. And so and eventually the State Puff Marshmallow Man would just come and kill us all. That would be that would be me. Um, so, yeah. And, you know, the, I don't know. I, what do you, automatic writing or whatever they call it and all these things. And I remain very skeptical about all of that stuff. Who knows? All I know is that as that was going on and they were saying that stuff upstairs, um, the door, and it opened in a way that, again, when folks see it, they can judge for themselves, but it's not the kind of, and my co-producer, Dale Stevens, is, a, is again, a very um, sort of skeptical, we're agnostics, and he looked at it and he, he basically went, holy crap, you know, that's not, like, how do you explain how that door opened? And I don't know, maybe there is a logical explanation, maybe it is just a coincidence, but there was a lot of, it, Holly's right, it had a very weird vibe to that place. We had, um, one of our researchers went on that one, um, Christina Kafari, and she, she is somebody who claims, for lack of a better uh, term, to be a little sensitive, say, to this kind of stuff. And she, she definitely, I mean, everybody was feeling something there. And again, as Jean, you said earlier, power of suggestion, who knows? But, um, but it was a place that definitely had a vibe to it and, uh, and some strange things that went on there. Well, if nothing else, uh, he can say power of suggestion, absolutely. But when it comes down to it, the door opened by itself, and we tried to recreate right. it, and we weren't able to. Yeah, and stronger winds didn't open it, and, and there was nobody else out there. I mean, this house is in the middle of frickin' nowhere. So, I mean, there's, there's nothing. Everybody that was within, you know, a mile of that place was inside that house. Um, it was so, so far out of the way that some of the crew got, their van got stuck. They, they missed the house when they showed up to arrive there. 
and they continued driving on, went over a bridge that only had one lane that was apparently built of logs and had a troll on it or something. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other story. <laughs> yeah, they and they had, to, they had to have some guy bring his truck and haul him out of the snow and mud because the, the production truck got stuck there. I mean, that's how far out of, of any element of civilization we were. So there were no kids there playing pranks or anything. And I mean, I went out literally 15 seconds after it happened. There's nobody around. So that's not what happened. And the fact that it all happened like bing, 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 that that's the same kind of thing as what happened in the jail cell in St. Andrews in terms of just timing and synchronicity or whatever you want to call it. And those are the kinds of things that as I've gone through myself that I was kind of hoping to experience um, or at least open to experience. And it sort of it does make it... You're still skeptical, you're still agnostic, it just, it makes it, you know, you sort of sit back as you're driving home and you go, you know, maybe agnosticism on all this is a bit of a, is a bit of a dodge. Maybe, you know, you move closer to taking a firm position that something, something is happening. Yeah. And well, whatever well, per- explanation you put to it, that's a different story. Personal experiences will, will definitely have a way of doing that. Um, how long ago did you tape this? How long ago did that happen? That episode? Uh, yeah. That was February, I believe. Holly, was it? I think so. Two months ago, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Approximately. About <laughs> the same time that the weird electronical thing started happening. Hmm. Have you had any contact with those people? Did the cleansing result in a successful cleansing? To my knowledge, it did. We actually had to come back the next morning. This was not something that was scheduled, but based off of the information that we received during that evening, we all agreed to come back and film with the psychic as she did a cleansing of of an area where we were told um, the spirit was to release it and then a cleansing of the house and some of the surrounding areas. And we've heard from the people since, and they said they cannot be happier. I mean, whether it's all in their mind, I have no idea, but, you know, there's some pretty happy people on the other end of it, and that's, that's well worth it. Mm-hmm. The truth of it is, there is something to be said for that. They, as far as they're concerned, they're good to go. You know, whatever thing was there is gone, and they were well pleased by it. So, you know, maybe if we did nothing else, we did some small amount of good just by making them feel better. I think there was something else going on there, but even if there wasn't, there's still that. Now, then you get into the question, well, okay, if they had paid $5,000 for that, not that that's what our psychic charge Right, right. You know, but if you're paying some huckster to come in for $5,000 cleanse your house, different story. But in this instance, you know, to them, all it cost them was their time, and they had asked us to come, and so they were satisfied. Is the right word? They relieved is the mm-hmm. best word. And these were people, that, you know, they're good, solid, common, um, normal people. And it was a mother and her daughter and her daughter's husband. And the mother had been having these experiences, I think, for 20 years or 20 Oh yeah, this had been going 30 on years. for 30 years. 30 years or more. The next day, she was almost. I think she might have been in tears, but she was very close. She wasn't in tears after the whole cleansing thing and the whole experience and she was she you know said basically I feel like a weight's been lifted like you know for the first time in 30 mm-hmm. years or whatever I feel like I have my home and um, you know that I gotta admit you know you drive it home from that and you feel a little you, you kind of feel good about that sure you no did something what, good in the world yeah for, for uh-huh. me first time for everything so <laughs> alright I'll make uh, a note of that the, the mother the daughter and the daughter's husband have any idea of their religious backgrounds off the top of my head, I don't think they were particularly religious, no. Um, okay. I would have to, like I said, it's been a month or two, I'd have to check the interview footage. Um, I can't remember their answer to that question, but I don't think they were particularly religious, yeah. All right. So the, the psychic you took with you, how did you find and or how did you find this person? Did you vet this person at all? 
Let me go back to that last question first, David. Um, mm -hmm. I do remember, because uh, I'm now I'm processing all seven episodes at once, I do know exactly what the religious background was. Sorry. Um, Wicked. At least the really? daughter was. The daughter, the daughter was, yeah, Wicked. Uh, the uh, mother, I couldn't say for sure. The husband, that, you know, atheist. <laughs> he was, he seemed like he, he didn't have any religious beliefs, but she was, she was uh, definitely Wiccan, right? Hmm. Okay, interesting. Are you ready to order the official Paracast t-shirt? You asked? We answered. We're now taking orders for the official Paracast t-shirt. It comes in white, 100% cotton. The front of it features the same logo that we have on our community forums. On the back it says, Separating Signal from Noise. It's just $14.95 plus shipping in your choice of sizes. To order the official Paracast t-shirt, here's all you have to do. Visit our new online store at store.theparacast.com. One more time, that's store.theparacast.com. You can use a major credit card or PayPal to place your order for the official Paracast t-shirt. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. We're talking with Paul Kimball and Holly Stevens alias Mullion Scolder, and we're finding that when you go out and you try to record a paranormal TV show, sometimes you're caught up in the events. You have things happen to you. So, the psychic, Paul, how did you find and vet this person? We had been to another place down in that same area of the province. Um, it's near a town called Yarmouth. Um, which if you're traveling from Portland, Maine, you'll take the ferry in Yarmouth is where the ferry comes. It's the first stop in, in Nova Scotia if you're coming from Maine. The house, that particular house, is in an old inn. It's an old sea captain's house. Uh, and the guy who had owned or who owned that had um, previously had the psychic, um, yeah, Bob, had Holly's mouthing Bob to me. Um, Bob had previously had the psychic in to his house, so he had dealt with her. So it was kind of a referral, and uh -huh. um, and uh, Bob, you know, sort of vouched for her. Uh, and uh, you know, my, my co-producer Dale was here. He dealt with this more than I did, so he would have a better answer than I. But that's how we came in touch with her, and she was vouched for by Bob. And uh, and you know, um, beyond that, in terms of vetting the psychic, I'm not exactly sure how you vet a psychic, other than I can tell you she doesn't. She's not one of these psychics who does the 2.99 an hour call shows and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So those, to me, if you're going to vet a psychic, my um, theory has always been if somebody's, there's nothing wrong with charging money for a talent that you may or may not have. Fair enough. But you know, if you're Sylvia Brown, for instance, 
the, I don't need to vet Sylvia Brown to just look at her and know that this lady is not legit. And you can go through her entire history and right. go, okay, she implodes on the coast-to-coast, fine, whatever. You know, the lady that we were dealing with, um, totally different, and she had uh, she had come to us through Bob, yeah, at the previous um, location that we've been at, which, again, was a weird place, too. So we had some experiences there, especially Holly. Uh, so that's how we found her, yeah. So, okay, you just brought up weird experiences, especially Holly. Holly. Yeah. <laughs> the place we were at was called uh, Churchill Mansion in Yarmouth, Nova Scotia. Um, and uh, the, the gentleman we were dealing with, um, Bob, who owns the location, or did own the location, I believe he may have sold it at this point, um, had had a number of different um, people come in, psychics especially, and who all... Some people couldn't stay there. He's had guests who had come and left in the middle of the night because they were unable to stay at this house. Um, so, yeah, we, we certainly had a number of experiences at this place. Um, I think the biggest one for me would have been a number of different potential spirits that we were dealing with in this house. I mean, I say spirits. I'm not actually certain they were the souls of someone deceased. They had names, but whether or not those are who they were, I have no idea. Um, I was staying in the room of a particular one. Her name was Lottie. And but that was that was fine in itself. You know, you're in a haunted hotel mansion in a haunted room, you know, where there's been a lady that allegedly killed someone in your bathroom. It's a little, yeah, that's kind of fun. It's a little, can be a little overwhelming. That's what you do, right? That's your job. But I thought staying there, and the first night that I was there, and I believe this actually showed up on the, the camera equipment. We were recording the two separate rooms where Paul and I were staying in. And I had a feeling, I had a sense. It's either an emotional, it's, this place is layered, layered with emotions. And in this particular room, you have, just walking in, there's this feeling that it's not your room. You know, that's kind of hard to maybe explain. But if just walking in, it's not your place. And that's not the same kind of feeling you have when you go to a motel it just it obviously belongs to someone else. So it's very, sometimes you just you do things you're not even sure why. I wasn't the only one. Crew would knock on doors before they went in them. It just felt like it belonged to someone else. And, of course, it did, but in a very different way. But this one night, this first night that we were there, I, um, I had, uh, you know, turned off the lights, jumped in bed, curled up into a ball, you know, okay, going to sleep now. And um, several times throughout the night, I, I don't know what woke me. Something woke me, and you know, normally if you're getting woken up in a scary place, you, you, your first instinct is just kind of pull the covers up over your head and kind of <laughs> dig in a little deeper. But instead, I would sit straight up and look around the room. The very bold thing for me to do for someone who's, you know, potentially in a haunted room. But I would look around the room. I'm not even sure why I would do this, but it happened several times during the night. And then later on in the night, I was trying to pull the covers over me a bit more. And there was this weight beside me, kind of like if there had been a cat sleeping beside me in the bed, to the point that I was trying to pull the covers up over me. I rolled around in the space a couple times and, and uh, had this feeling that, okay, yeah, Lottie is on the bed. That's great. Okay, just, I just I'm kind of cold. Can I get the blankets, please? I wasn't scared. But the next morning I told some of the crew about it. I was like, oh, guys, this really strange thing happened. And when they were reviewing the footage... Um, Dale, the co-producer, actually said to me, he's like, Holly, I, I got to ask you, did you have your laptop or anything beside you? I said, no. He said, because you can see the blankets go down around the edge of you, 
and almost like they're, they're really tight in next to you, which maybe you would have thought they were tucked underneath of you, and that's why you couldn't pull them up over you. But then you start rolling in the space, and the blankets next to you don't move at all, as if there's something there. And hmm. I was like, wow, that's, that's pretty crazy, Dale. I'm going to have to take a look at that later. But it's exactly what it felt like at the time. Like there was somebody lying next to me on the bed. Yeah, she was really, of all the episodes, I think that's the one that weirded her out the most. Because the uh, the two that we've already talked about, uh, the jail and, and the farm, that was, not, not to say it was more me, but the physical manifestations of it, I guess. I was in the basement. I'm the guy who had the thing around the throat, whatever. This one, that house, truly weirded her out to the point where um, on one of the nights we were there, I think it was the first night, might have been the second, I'm not sure. Uh, she came, everybody else was asleep, I was still up, because I'm a night owl. And she came, she said, I don't want to be... Okay, now, and nobody laughed. <laughs> she came and she said, I don't want to be in the room alone. I'm, I'm really uncomfortable. And, um, you know, I'm well aware of how that looks. So I said, well, good, we've got cameras in there and I'll leave the door open. But she did not want to sleep in that room alone. There was another bed. So, that, you know, two, it's a, it's a bed, double bedroom or whatever. So I just, I was, I stayed awake basically the whole night. And uh, the sun came up and I popped out. But, you know, that's how she was very upset, I think is the best way to put it. That, to be completely fair, I wasn't, I wasn't afraid of, of this, this personal spirit, this Lottie spirit. There was another spirit in the house, and it was a male spirit, and it was very, um, didn't really understand personal boundaries, if that makes any sense. So, yeah, to be completely honest, there was another presence there, um, and I approached Bob about it, and I said, look, what's the deal with this because I can there's something else here and he said yep that's so and so and I was like okay so I'm not completely crazy because they're just it felt like you know when someone gets inside your personal space when they're talking to you and they're just that little bit close and uh, mm -hmm. the wall, it was oh, that yeah. kind of sensation and and it was not a very pleasant sensation and there's a fair great thing I, you know I have a background my undergrad degrees in history and so a lot of this is historical and what interests me, like the hanging with Hutchins, or in this case, Churchill Mansion and the Churchill family, um, very wealthy, very well-known mariners, sea captains um, from Nova Scotia's past, distantly related to me as it turns out, but also related to Winston Churchill. It's from that entire Churchill family. Anywho, um, the guy, Aaron Churchill, who built this house, there may have, it's a very complicated story about him and Lottie and his entire family that took quite some prodding to get out of, of Bob because it's still, even a hundred years later, um, a bit scandalous, you know, because there's still plenty of Churchill's descendants there. But the question, you know, there's some hint that Holly talked about Lottie potentially having murdered a, a man in her room. Um, there's some hint that perhaps Aaron Churchill, who is this supposedly this other spirit, was not. Holly talks about personal boundaries. I mean, you know, that's a that's a euphemism for um, something else. That uh, that he may have not been the most um, upstanding citizen, shall we say, uh, when it comes to uh, his dealings with women. So, and other there were other female crew members. Uh, on one other female crew member on that shoot, but then when we went back to do the farm um, later, we stayed again at Churchill Mansion because it's nearby, and we had uh, another female crew member who hadn't been there the first time, and they, they all said the same thing, that they felt much more uncomfortable um, there than the male crew members did, 
and uh, that was without knowing the story um, in terms of this. Uh, as soon as this, this, the second time we went there, as soon as she walked in, she found the place uncomfortable, and she hadn't, she didn't know about the story about Aaron Churchill or any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, you know, you can, you can tell these these stories. Each place has its own story, which is what makes it interesting. That's why we try and find places that have stories. The other thing that we make sure is. Um, we, each one of these places has to have a first-hand witness account um, going in, so there's people we can talk to. So it can't be, well, here's a haunted church, but if nobody's been haunted there in 150 right. years. It's like, no, okay, you were haunted here two years ago, or you've been here, or all that sort of stuff. So we talk to first-hand witnesses, and then you know we, we see if we have those same experiences ourselves. And we haven't. In some places, we haven't. Um, in fact, there's one location we did, which um, is a university residence, here at the university called Acadia University, where both Holly and I went. Actually, she she lived in that residence when she was on campus, and uh, and I dated a girl that, that lived in that residence. And you know, it's it's we, everybody who goes to that university knows the legend that that place is haunted. And um, you know, it sort of turns out that uh, it's probably not. Uh, and so that would be, I suppose, our debunking episode where you go there and you realize that the stories don't really hold up if you look at the actual factual record that sits in the university archives. We talked to the university archivist and uh, and said, look, the story was somebody had hanged themselves there about 100 years ago. And, you know, is there any record of a hanging? And you go down and ask, no. And so then you get into the, and I find this just as interesting. Okay, well, let's assume that there is nothing here. But how does the story start? Like, how did these stories start? And then it becomes an episode almost about, well, okay, let's figure out for those that are definitively perhaps not haunted, um, I just said definitively perhaps. Uh, oh well, uh-huh. but you, you know what I mean. Uh, yeah. The great contradiction. That yes. would, sure. But this then, unlike shows that are like yours, forgive me for the interruption. Unlike shows that are like yours, you don't mind exposing a fraud if there is a fraud or just a little fanciful tale or whatever it is. Right. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, and uh, I wouldn't call it a fraud. I mean, I believe that, you know, the conclusion I would draw is that the legend somehow started somewhere, perhaps even rooted, it's like Robin Hood, perhaps it's even rooted in some element of historical fact, but then it just builds itself over a period of, in this case, 80 years. And we trace the story. It really sort of started in the, the early 1920s, and um, that's when it you know, the first appearance of this story happens, and it was right after the Spanish influenza epidemic, when there's no question there were a, a large number of people died across the world, of course, but there were also students at Acadia that had died, and, um, you know, that might have had some bearing on it. Who knows? So we're, we haven't even begun post-production on that, but we, you know, that's the one we brought the Ouija board out for, because it was just like, look, there's there's nothing happening here. Even the stories, one eyewitness we had, it was a... Um, it was all a dream kind of thing. As soon as you're into dreams, well, that's, you know, you're, you're into a whole bunch of things that are probably not paranormal. So we didn't have an actual eye eyewitness who was awake and something happened. And so we said, well, let's bring out the Ouija board. And, you know, we tried all those tricks and nothing happened. And uh, we talked to the archivist. And, and um, you know, as far as she's concerned, there's nothing to it. It's a good story, but it's, it's, there's nothing to it. And absolutely, the same thing is true in, in my sort of, quote, career with the UFO thing. If it's bunk... 
debunk it. There's nothing wrong with being a debunker because as soon as you remove that from the pool, then you can focus on much more interesting cases like the right. or, right. or Churchill Mansion or whatever. So absolutely, no problem with that. I mean, if you've got a case that, that just isn't working out, say so. And do one of two things. Either don't put it on television. You know, it's just like, okay, this, we need haunted, so let's not use this one. That's fair enough. Or put it on television and say, look, not every house that claims to be a haunted house is a haunted house. That works. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on hand, and he has a special offer for listeners of the Paracast. We are offering six issues for the price of five. Normally, when you send me a subscription for $19.95, a new subscription, you get five issues. It's our introductory offer. But just for our friends on the Paracast and friends of Gene and Dave, we're going to throw in an extra issue and give you six issues for the price of five. That's six issues for $19.99 just for you. How do we take advantage of this offer? There are three ways to take advantage of it. One is, if you're online, go to www.ufomag.com. Hit subscribe when you come to the PayPal page. Just put in under item, Paracast Offer, 1995, and I will know that you get six issues for the price of five. Or you could send your check or money order to UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California. That's Ray spelled R-E-Y. California 90295. Put down your name and your address, and on your name and address label, put down Paracast offer. You can also put it on your check for 1995 in your money order. I will know exactly what it means because I'm psychic, and I will credit you with six issues instead of five for that 1995. Or you can call me at 1 888 UFO. 6242, and I will take your name and address and your credit card and send you six issues for the price of five, and that's how you do it. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. By the way, what also works is the fact that we are talking with Mully and Scalder. Paul Kimball and Holly Stevens. We have another couple of sessions to spend with them. David, you're champing on the bit. I can sense it. I feel well, it in my I, Ouija board. <laughs> Gene, you are the king of segues, by the way, I have to say. That's Every, pretty, pretty awesome. Yeah, you, you, you oh, rule. Boy. I send out bills for that, by the way. <laughs> Segway bills. Uh, okay, let's call Steve Wozniak and let him know. So, okay, well, I understand he invests in anything these days, so maybe... Uh, Maybe. So, Holly, uh, this whole thing about feeling uh, someone laying in the bed next to you, was there anecdotal evidence that other people had experienced ex something close to that in the same room? Uh, there had been um, a couple of other guests who, while they were staying in this particular room, had experienced similar things. I don't know if anyone actually said that they actually had someone on the bed where they tried to pull the covers kind of thing, just the sensation. There mm -hmm. were some people who felt that, uh, I guess, again, that the old hag syndrome kind of thing, they felt that pressure on their chest and had to leave. They felt it hard to breathe while they were there. And some of these, these are some of the people who actually left. A number of people had strange dreams about Lottie. But then again, if you're talking about it around the fireplace before you go to bed at night, maybe you would dream right. about something like that. 
Brian. Any attempts to run EVP in that room? Uh, yes, we did, actually. There was a number of different... There was the digital video recorder, which was set up at least the first night, and there was also some ADRs that were taken. I'm not sure if they've analyzed that data yet, whether or not they've actually come up with anything. Yeah, we had the EVPs, the, the audio recorders there. I don't know whether they've reviewed that particular episode yet, David. So I, I know that in other episodes, uh, we did one in a restaurant here in Halifax, legendarily haunted, the Five Fishermen. It used to be a morgue, and two things happened in Halifax. In 1917, the Halifax Explosion, which was the largest man-made explosion before Hiroshima, an ammo ship hit a uh, hospital ship in the harbor. This is where the convoys used to, in the First World War would embark for Europe, so um, the harbor would be full of ships, and they hit, boom, it was almost like an atomic blast, killed almost 2,000 people. Anywho, the, the site where the restaurant is now was um, uh, a morgue. A lot of the victims of that disaster were taken there. And also the Titanic, when the Titanic went down, mm. most of the victims that were recovered were brought to Halifax and they were offloaded on the, uh, on the wharves. And a number of them were brought to that morgue as well. So mm -hmm. it's a place that certainly has a history to it uh, and a creepy, spooky history. So we went there and we were up in the, um, in a, in the ladies' bathroom. Oh, right. Yeah. I've always wanted to be in the ladies' bathroom. I, oh my God, they don't have urinals. I didn't know. And the reason we were there is because one of the staff people, all those staff people had reported weird, strange things. But one in particular that we talked to had said that she had gone into the ladies' bathroom and seen a, uh, a little girl dressed sort of period costume, if you will, from that, that time period, early 20th century. And the girl had looked at her kind of, as I recall, and this was months ago that we did this episode, but Holly can correct me if I'm wrong, with sad eyes, she was lost. Yeah, she felt like she had connected with her. Right, and, and so our witness felt like she definitely had a connection with her. So, okay, great. Guess where we're going, guys. So we set up shop in that room. And so we've got the, um, the EVPs, the audio recorders there, and they have analyzed the audio from that. And Holly knows probably better than I do. They, they definitely think they've heard something. And we, sorry, before Holly goes, we did have a weird experience in there too. This was the first episode we shot. And I, it's, we didn't have our camera guy there, and it, but they, we were mics so they could hear us. But I, and I started yelling, get up here, you know, bring the, the real camera, the HD camera up here, not these little DVR ones. And what had happened is we had been hearing some noises and uh, something fell. The only thing in the room that, other than the bathroom sort of things was this dresser or um, what would you call it? Uh, vanity. Vanity, there you go. And it was pushed right up against the wall and something something fell and uh, and we heard this 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 noise and part of it was that there had been a story uh, something about uh, a coin and I'm sorry guys I'm being I probably shouldn't have told this because it's it's been a while I haven't I'm not quite up on no, go ahead detail. sorry but there it, it worked out that there was um, this story of something to do with Holly. Correct me if I'm wrong there. Okay, yeah. oh, you go. You probably remember this better than I do. Memories fading. Yeah. No, uh, what, what had happened is we were sitting there, one of our first episodes, and um, just uh, doing our routine things. Oh, if there's you know any spirits, paranormal entities that want to make contact with us, we're here if we'd like to listen, blah, 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 that kind of thing. And Paul had just finished saying this, and we hear this clunk right. of a noise then we couldn't figure out what it was. It sounded like a coin had hit the floor and then 
that was it. Just kind of stopped. Is that correct? It just it didn't roll. That was the whole point that we were trying to recreate. Exactly. And and there was some. There's. I can't remember what it is, fellas, but there was definitely something about a coin. There was an element to the story that involved an old coin. Well, what had happened was, is we we were listening. I guess they were listening to the audio later on, and the sound they heard that we had heard was that of a coin. Yet when we were looking underneath this vanity, trying to find an object that would make that noise, we found a button. I guess there was no way that this button could actually make the noise that we heard, I think was... Well, no, but just in terms of the story, there was something about the haunting story that involved old coin, and I can't remember what the exact details of that are. But in terms of the like the audio guy who was there in the time, at the time said, no, like he heard it, and he said, I definitely thought it was penny, literally a penny dropping. And so there was this button under there, which is not unusual to find in a male or a female washing something. And so we, we kind of, you know, did some tests where we would lift the button up and drop it and say, compare and contrast. And also the button had sort of was a good foot away from the wall kind of thing. And how would the button have gotten there? Like the only way it could have gotten there would have been if it had fallen at the exact same time that, that we were doing this other thing. It would have had to have rolled and then yeah. fallen over again, which was not what was heard on the audio. The only thing that I can say is that Holly actually walked out of that episode being a bit more skeptical than I am, which is weird given my skeptical nature. I am convinced that the logical, seemingly logical explanation well, it was just a button that was wedged in back there and at that very moment just happened to fall and then roll a foot away even though you didn't hear it rolling, et cetera. I, I'm just convinced that that's not what happened. I'm, con- I'm convinced that that button was there under the vanity from the get-go because the vanity was... Well, you know, let me ask you a question, Paul. Let me interrupt you for a moment because sure. you have all these sounds recorded? Yes. Okay. Uh, the floor of the bathroom was made of what material? Tile, I believe. Yeah. Tile, right? Okay, probably tile. tile with some grouting. That's our recollection data. But we could always go back and just have a peek if we needed to look at the material mm-hmm. that were involved. All right. It's all on video and everything. Okay. The the button was made of what? It was a plastic button, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Seems to me like if you had the sound of metal impacting tile, there would be a, a very different temporal characteristic to that than plastic yes. impacting tile. And so the, the recorded sound analyzed, if you're saying you, you actually caught the sound of whatever this impact was, that should, I mean, I'm not saying it'll give you some sort of absolute answer, but certainly I think that would help you really uh, sort of eliminate the possibility of plastic hitting tile. No, absolutely. That's already been looked into, and okay. the, the audio guys have said they're convinced that it's it's not the button. Um, that's their opinion. The opinion of the audio guy there on site at the time with the headphones on was this man. He said, I could hear it clear as day and coming through our wireless mics. He said it didn't sound like a plastic button hitting the floor to me. It sounded like you had just dropped a quarter or a penny, right. something metallic, a coin on the floor. And I wish I could be a little more specific. And maybe, you know, on the uh, Paracast discussion forums, which I love, there can be a thread about this, and I'll go do a, I'll, I'll go back and look at it. But there is definitely a part of the story dealing with the actual haunting itself that involved a coin. And I just can't remember what, what that okay. was. No, that's quite all right. One of the things I'd like to request of you then... Um, um, which I think would be really a, a great assistance to people trying to look at this stuff seriously. It would be wonderful to have a list of gear 
with specific makes and models. I'm very interested in in the audio recording equipment you're using. I mean, really interested in that. And so it, it'd be great to do that because of the fact that, um, and we've suggested this to some other researchers in this field, that there'd be some sort of reference or baseline of what kind of gear someone should use. And uh, I think at this point in time, and we had this discussion with, uh, we had uh, John Zaffis on the show, sort of a well-known person. I think he's related to um, to Ed and Lorraine Warren, actually. I think he's their nephew or something like that. Right. And we asked him about this issue of audio recording equipment, and he really sloughed it off. He just said, well, you know, we use whatever we have. And I said, well, you need to give me a better answer than that, because, again, for a couple of hundred dollars now, one can get the Zoom H2 recorder, which I, I actually own one, it's very high-quality field recorder with very sensitive microphones. In fact, that unit has the ability of, of doing the equivalent of a full surround sound recording. It's got four mic capsules in it. Yeah. And you can, you can actually capture 360 degrees of, uh, of audio in a room, which, again, for doing things like uh, sonic placement in a stereo field, uh, incredibly useful uh, thing to have. So there's no reason, you know, and Zaffis, his response at the time was, you know, well, we have to go with the cheap stuff, but, you know, we can't afford thousands of dollars for equipment. And it's like, well, this is a $200 recorder. This is not a $1,000 piece of gear. You know, it'd be nice to try to sort of up the standards of what people are doing in terms of the hardware. And I think it'd be very useful for the audience to know exactly what kind of cameras you were using, exactly what kind of audio gear you were using and or microphones. That'd be great if you could post that as well. Done. And I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll go on further. It hasn't been my role to look at the technical end of the equipment. And for anybody who's sitting out there, they would go, oh my God, well, maybe it should have been your role. Well, you know, you only have so much time in the day, and my role is to be front of the camera, direct, and do a mm -hmm. bunch of other things. Sure. So I trust the people, the production team, uh, that we have good equipment. But I'll go one further. If I post that list, and I'll track it down over the next week or so, if people have suggestions, because we still have seven episodes left to shoot, I have no problem if somebody says, hey, you're using this audio recorder, you know, maybe you should be using this audio recorder, you'll you'll get better results, or it's more, um, as you would say, credible, and that's not the word I mean, but you know what I mean. Sure, absolutely. Uh, and I would absolutely uh, go to the production meeting and say, you know, before we go to the UK, guys, what do we get left in the contingency? Let's up the quality of what we're using, if what we're using is not up to snuff. I think it is, but if it's, if it's not, or... It, let me put it this way. It's not a question of being up to snuff. If we can find something with better snuff, if you know what I mean. <laughs> absolutely. If we increase the snuff, then I'm absolutely all for that. So, yeah, I'll post that over the next week. I'll get a list. And the great thing is we have a list of equipment because when you travel to the United States, you have to have the Carnet coming from Canada. Right, um, right. We have all your gear, so we have all that. And they still turn you away from the border anyway, so, um, which is why we're shooting in the United Kingdom as opposed to 6th in Louisiana, which is what we were supposed to be doing the well, no, I can tell you what that's about, and I'm not, I don't want to embarrass Holly, but they take a look at a picture of Holly, and they realize if they let her in the country, uh, a lot of the women here is going to look pretty bad by comparison. So it's not about your gear, it's about your co-host. Uh-oh, uh-oh. Oh, no. Probably the people in the U.S. who just heard that and went, what the? <laughs> well, now they're going to want us to look. a whole can of worms for me, man, thanks. Too bad. Oh, yeah, now they're going to click on the Holly Stevens link under contributors at the site. By the way...
Fate magazine is proud to be celebrating its 60th anniversary and its 700th issue. That's 60 years of bringing you true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. It's bigger and better than ever. Subscribe now by calling 1-800-728-2730 or online at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Jesus and Mary David Bianchi. You never know what's going to happen next. We're talking to Molly and Scalder. I don't have to give them any further introduction. We know they're really Paul and Holly. Or Holly and Paul, if they want to change their identities, you know, maybe one will become the skeptic after being the believer, and they can really confuse the audience. We have another session to spend with them, and we're trying to figure it out. Okay, so you can't do it in the United States, but you can go to the U.K. to film. Yeah, that's a long story. Oh, that's a drag. We were, um, I do genuinely love the United States of America. I love traveling there. I love Americans. I'm a big fan. But, you know, some of the rules, and it's a, it's a really a film and television industry thing, really. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's really odd because the U.S. is the biggest media exporter in the world. And there is no other country or anything that's even remotely close to being a threat to the American film and television industry. That you guys spew content out. And people in France go, ah, you know, so it's the rest of the world that should be concerned. Having said that, you know, we can go as a documentary crew to the United Kingdom and just walk right in and that's it. Welcome, you know, welcome to our country, mates. As long as you're not being paid by the British. Oh, that's British. Yeah, that's the best I can do. Sorry, that's why I lived there for a year and I still can't do it. But as long as you're not being paid by them, as long as you're a Canadian company going into work for a Canadian network, they are fine. The United States, totally different. In 10 years, I have gone down there, as you would know, four UFO films, other films, never had a problem, ever. And this time we were turned away because of some of a visa issue that I, I don't want to get into. I sat there in the airport and I was just dumbfounded and I asked the border officer, because we have pre-clearance here in Halifax, thank God this didn't happen in Washington, it happened here in our own hometown. And I, I just asked him, I said, for 10 years, me and every other filmmaker from the city, the province has been coming through this airport without a problem, coming down, filming, we're shooting for a Canadian network, we're not being paid, but we're actually spending money in your country. And because we were doing six episodes in Louisiana, we're highlighting the one state in your country that, courtesy of Hurricane Katrina, the governor of Louisiana and George Bush, really could use, you know, the tourism, anything that highlights the state in a good way is a good thing. So... How am I supposed to know if I've never been turned away before that you're now going to turn me away? And he just said, well, obviously the guys you've dealt with and all those other times weren't doing their jobs. And I just thought, okay, that's great, thanks, you know, done. So uh, I have to admit, the number of times I'll be filming in the United States from now will probably be a lot fewer. And I'll be looking at, uh, if I have a documentary series, my first choice will be to shoot it in any other country on the planet except yours. But for travel, I love Vegas. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll tell you what, Paul, do you think that possibly, do you think that maybe the new administration will change things here in the United States? No, 
Because I don't think it was something about the Bush administration. Um, uh, in fact, it, uh, during the Bush administration, I had no problem coming down to film in the U.S. I think what it is is the United States is um, film and television industry down there is so concerned and has been for years about work coming to Canada. They're concerned about Canadians coming down there. And what they look at, they would look at it this way. They would say, what they're going to do is they're going to come down. They're going to, and frankly, the border guy actually explained it to me in sort of these terms. You're going to come down here. You're going to film a commercial product that will be aired on Canadian TV, but then will be sold around the world. Well, those timers, just to pick a potential competitor here, is an American show filmed in a, And then, so what you're doing is you're creating competition for an American program or American programs, and we don't want that. Uh, honestly, I put I have a Facebook thing, and I put up the next day, I said, you know, Paul, my update, said, Paul believes in free trade, and it's a shame that our southern cousins don't. And, you know, there's there's some truth to that. Uh, well, you know what's interesting? That how many American TV shows that we all know about are filmed in Vancouver? Yep, X Files being a good example. For me. Well, that's the main example. But now, if you look at the Sci-Fi Channel, it's got to be what seventy-five or eighty percent of their content, all the new original shows. I mean, I'm sure your listeners don't care about this at all, but it's a long-going battle between film industries in Canada and the United States. All right, we don't have an awful lot of time on the PowerCast to pursue this with Paul and Holly, but let's look at future stuff that you're doing. UK taping there, not the United States, of course. So God bless, God bless America, but no, we're going to the United Kingdom now. Uh, and one more episode at least to do here in the province of Nova Scotia. Uh, so I think it's probably coming down to four in the, oh, sorry, five in the UK, one here in, in Canada, maybe four in the UK, two in Canada. But that's, that's what's going to happen. The bill of particulars is strictly ghost related apparition type sightings. Is that the entire bill of particulars for this program? That seems to be mostly what we're, uh, we're getting and finding there. We haven't been really going after anyone who needs uh, exorcisms or anything like that. So just your run-of-the-mill, strange happenings in pubs, houses, hotels, mansions. If you can call it run-of-the-mill, you see you've become jaded. Uh, <laughs> run-of-the-mill, just, you know, yeah. Yeah, right. Every, Listen, every it's just a UFO sighting. Three aliens landed last week, and there's a ghost over there. And <laughs> my grandmother came back because she wanted to try to make some matzo balls again. Well, I, I tend to think of it as the, the lesser side of the other side as opposed to any kind of demonic presence. So No, that's an interesting thing, too. We've talked to a few people on the show who kind of think there's a demonic aspect to anything involving ghosts. Now, we're not trying to look here at what causes this except for the time travel thing. And I think the common perspective on all this is these are spirits of the dead who, for whatever reason, did not complete their journey to the other side, so they're left here. Maybe they're in some kind of way station, some kind of intermediary point, and they just never leave. So let's look at your respective feelings about this, Holly. Well, I, I think that's definitely a possibility. I don't think it's the only possibility for why people seem to see and feel unexplained phenomena, but I think it's it's certainly one of the more common ones. And for as for anyone who considers that any type of paranormal activity as far as ghosts are concerned, demonic, and those people probably haven't really experienced much as much that is from the other side because I think there are things out there which you really do not want to tamper with. They're just way beyond our comprehension. Now, that doesn't mean at one point in, in time, in the future, we're not going to be able to understand scientifically where these things come from and why they're there, but as for right now, I, you need to tread carefully. In what areas do you feel you have to tread carefully? Ah, very good question. Uh, when you're dealing with 
the unknown. Anytime you don't understand what you're dealing with, you, you really have to be careful. I okay, mean, so I you feel you're being real careful in terms of what you're doing in connection with this TV show. You know, I'll chime in here, Gene. I don't think you have to be careful. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, and I, I have had, I do have very good friends, two in particular. These are people who both have law degrees. They both have master's degrees. Um, these are smart, intelligent, grounded people who have, who have played around in the past with Ouija boards. Neither of them will do it now. And one in particular, I had a personal experience with her after she had done it and she came to me uh, in tears. And so I've talked, I've always been interested by this, this idea, you know, you can even buy a Ouija board for 10 bucks at a Kmart or something. So how could something made by Parker Brothers or whatever channel the demonic forces of the other world? And so I asked a psychic about this once, and I also asked the question to a guy who's studying for a master's degree in theology. So two different angles on it, and they both said Ouija board's bad. And the guy who's doing the theology thing, uh, his, his area of expertise is exorcism. And they explained it to me like this, and this gets to your question a bit about, well, maybe you should, or our Holly's answer, maybe you should be a bit careful, maybe. They said the Ouija board is just a, a tool. It could be anything, but it just happens to be a tool. And what you're doing is, think of it like this. You're in a house, and you're going to bed at night. Do you lock the door, or do you leave the door open? Most people lock their door. The Ouija board or anything like that, you're basically leaving the door open. Now, there's a possibility that what walks through the door might be very friendly and nice. Could happen. But generally speaking, friendly and nice people, when they come to your house, will knock or ring the bell. The people who walk through open doors, as it was explained to me, or the things or entities or whatever, that walk through the open doors are probably the ones that you wouldn't let in if you had a locked door and you had the opportunity to keep them out. So what you're doing is you're potentially inviting things in that could be harmful, could be spiritually harmful or, or whatever. And it doesn't matter whether you think they're demons or whether you think it's some sort of extra dimensional trickster, um, something many UFO people would, would know that term. Whatever you think it is, it's not necessarily the, and this gets to my explanation, it's I'm not a big believer in the spirit of the dead, you know, not finding their way to heaven thing. Because I am an agnostic. I think there are probably scientific explanations for this, but that doesn't mean that you're not dealing with some sort of entity, non-human intelligence, that maybe doesn't have your best interests in heart. And so at that point, it doesn't really matter, does it? Whether it's demons or ghosts or tricksters, or extra-dimensional beings, doesn't matter. You're dealing with a non-human intelligence, and whenever you deal, God knows when you deal with a human intelligence, you have to be careful. But if you're dealing with something that might be non-human that we don't completely understand, then I think you do have to exercise an element of care. And that's certainly one thing I've become, and I think maybe Holly has too, we've become more aware of as the series has gone along. And so we like to joke, and it's half a joke, and it might half be serious, that when this is over, she and I are going to take a trip to Peru, and we're going to hop on a boat, go up the Amazon or up into the jungles, and hang out with a native shaman for a week or 10 days or whatever and get ourselves cleansed, properly cleansed. And uh, somebody said, well, couldn't you just get a priest to do that? And I said, I know, but it's Peru. I, I get to go to Peru. So, you know, but that idea that when you're done, when you've gone through the experience of, say, doing 13 episodes, which really is 13 places, and assuming that at least some of them you might have experienced something, some of that might remain with you, not for good, but rather for ill, potentially. So why not sort of take the extra step of just making sure? If we can cleanse a house, then maybe we can cleanse ourselves, and uh, that might be the cherry on top of the cake when we're done, and that would be an interesting experience in and of itself. You can almost do a show on the cleansing. 
that thought crossed my mind, and that that might actually happen. I don't know. We're still discussing that. Well, for suggesting this to you, I get co-writer's credit because we understand <laughs> we're now dealing with show business, and because this is show business, therefore I get co-writer's credit. David can get you know his percentage. He will argue with me over what percentage he feels that he deserves, of course, because he's deserving of a very high percentage. We do this. Okay, we only have a couple of minutes left. Tell our listeners one more time. When's the show going to be on? What's it called? And about the prospects that maybe we'll see it in the USA. Um, we don't have a definitive title for the show yet. We're so it's called to... Don't Worry, We'll Think of a Title. Well, yeah. yeah, actually, in fact, if anyone has any suggestions, they want to put it up on the blog. then uh... Or the message board, Bearcast. No, we, it was originally called Maritime Ghosts because of the maritime provinces here. But as soon as we started doing episodes outside the Maritimes, we decided something else would be better. So, you know, the word ghost will be in there somewhere. It'll be, it airs on a network called Eastlink up here, which is a regional network in Canada that has um, a national reach. So you'll be able to see it anywhere in Canada. Our distributor uh, in Toronto will then hopefully sell it to television and DVD around the world. And if you want more information, at least for now, because we don't have a website up for it yet, but Holly and I do have our blog uh, where we talk a bit about the series. But also, Holly did an excellent column that uh, got picked up by some of the paranormal news services about ayahuasca, you know, that sort of expanding your consciousness kind of stuff which plays in a bit to what we're talking about here too. So you can you can go to um mollyscalder.blogspot.com and that's where you can find that. And what will freak out everybody is that occasionally Holly's going to be scolder, occasionally Paul's going to be scolder and Molly will be the other person because they want to confuse everybody. Seriously speaking, though Paul, we know you're a regular presence at our forums forum.theparacast.com. We invite Holly Stevens to join the forum we really want you on there okay this is oh, I'd the, love to. okay definitely we'll work it out with you paul kimball holly stevens thanks for joining us this week on the powercast thanks for having us gene and uh, for anybody who uh, thought we were going to give you all the answers today i think all we did was raise some questions but that's generally speaking what we do The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast.